Welcome to the Daniel Workman Show. It is yours truly coming to you live, 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. This is your 6 a.m. West Coast wake-up call. It is Monday morning, April 15th, tax day for many people. Hope you get your taxes in. And we are joined here on the show by none other than Mr. Paul Kennedy of Soccer America. Paul, welcome to the show. Glad to be with you this morning. So, Paul, you have a, a very long and distinguished career in American soccer media covering the sport. How, how far back did, did you start uh, in, in terms of covering soccer in America? Uh, the first story I ever wrote about Soccer was for Soccer America, who I work for now, and that was in 1974. I was a college student, and by then I had gotten the Soccer Jones big time. And where I went to college, Colgate University in upstate New York, they had a, a like I'm sure most universities had in those days, they had a great uh, library of newspapers. And that would have been, you know, about 10 U.S. newspapers. It would have had, you know, the, the London Times, you know, Italian paper, French paper, German paper. So for me, who was interested in soccer and who couldn't find it anywhere else, I just loved it. And so the first story I wrote was a sort of a survey of the media coverage in these uh, U.S. newspapers. And uh, from then I started writing Soccer America, started in 1971, and pretty much took anything that anyone sent to Clay Burling, who was the founder of the magazine. And uh, the other thing that I was fortunate about was I, when I was in college, I really wanted you know, to go to work in France. I, my French wasn't very good, so I, but I was able to get an internship in France where I said I, you know, I, that I spoke French, which you know, wasn't, as I said, very good. And so to improve my French, I started reading a French soccer magazine called France Football, which was the Bible of soccer and uh, covered it internationally like no one else did in the world, partly because it had started the Ballon d'Or, which is the European player of the year, which is now uh, you know, the world player of the year. And one thing led to another that uh, within a couple of years, I uh, sent the article one day and Lo and behold, they wanted me to write about American soccer for them. So the point being that I was fortunate enough to, to be involved in soccer in the early 70s when it was just getting going and to be able to cover it uh, um, at all levels for Soccer America and for France football. At the same time, I was pursuing a, a law degree and then uh, practiced law for a few years, but I always wanted to do what I do now, which I've now done full time for 34 years. So it's a long time. 34 years. It is a long time, but it flies by when you're having fun, right? Yes. I mean, uh, I mean, I work harder today than I did when I started. And, 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 and I can say that it was very hard work when I got to Soccer America to help take it off. But um, I can't think of anything else I would do. And I consider myself 
uh, obviously very fortunate to have a job in media today considering how uh, tough the business is and how tough the soccer media business has always been. So I want to jump in and just kind of jump around a few things that you have seen over the years because I think one of the things that has gotten lost in the shuffle over the last um, you know, 10, 15, 20 years is how far back our soccer history actually goes. So you're, you started covering the game in the 70s for a lot of more modern soccer uh, fans in America. They kind of it's almost as if soccer didn't exist in the U.S. until 1996. Um, so take us back to the to the your early days of covering American soccer. What what was the landscape like when you began covering the game? It was truly just taking off. And it's something where I think of it a lot these days. And uh, as an example, in the past year, one of the great pioneers of the sport, Ron Newman, passed away. And you had a lot of uh, players at the end of their careers, mostly players who had not did not have great careers, uh, usually Englishmen or or uh, someone who spoke English who came here. And their job really wasn't so much to play, but to sell the game. And so, you know, what people don't realize is, you know, the game's been around for a long time, but most Americans had no, you know, had, you know, never seen a soccer ball before, didn't know what it was like. I mean, the example I would say is for myself, where uh, I first played soccer in the mid-60s when our elementary school uh, gave up six-a-side football and took up soccer. The problem was no one had ever seen it played. And um, so the first soccer game I ever went to was a college game at West Point, which was probably maybe half hour to an hour from where I grew up. And there are a lot of people I, I know of whose, uh, you know, whose first soccer game they ever saw was the first game they ever played in. You know, so it's, uh, you know, it's something that it has, a, you know, it, it has, you know, uh, it took a lot to get it going to where it is now. So that um, the way I look at it is I've, you know, you know, using the example of having, uh, you know, played in, you know, since the little I played in the mid 60s. So now that's a span of 50 years and soccer's come an incredibly long way, ways that that, that, you know, those of us who were back involved and followed it early on would never have imagined. But at the same time, it's going to be another 50 years, I would imagine, before it ever reaches the potential it can and should and needs to reach. So uh, it's, uh, you know, it's uh, been quite a journey, but it, it, there's still so much more to go that makes it very, uh, you know, humbling, I would say. So looking at soccer in, in, the, in the span of your career, since the mid-70s to today, 34 years and in, in, in counting, what have you seen in terms of progress on the professional side since the mid-70s? What, what is the landscape like today in your coverage with Soccer America uh, in terms of the, the teams, the franchises in Major League Soccer, maybe the, the clubs and in, in franchises uh-huh. in USL, et cetera? I would say the biggest thing is the, you know, the long-term commitment from owners where, uh, you know, the interest in the days of the NESL in the 60s, 70s, and until... It folded in, in 1984. Was very transitory, in that uh, you know most owners, you know, looked at it as as an opportunity, not a, not an investment, as an opportunity to try something, and they would jump in very quickly without a lot of research, and get out very quickly, 
And so that, uh, you know, now I would say is that, you know, and you look at it especially in terms of, if you look at the old footage of, of teams and games, the teams, the roster, you know, they might've had 16 players on a team. They might've had a, two coaches and that was it. Um, you know, obviously sports uh, and soccer generally, the, the, uh, the staffing of teams has, has grown tremendously over the years. Um, but soccer was very bare bones. And he looked at the, where the games were played. Most of the were played on baseball fields, literally baseball fields where, you know, uh, you know, we still have that at Yankee stadium and it, and it looks awful, but that was the norm back then. And so it's amazing to see. And, and you know, we saw this past weekend with the opening of the new stadium in Minnesota is, you know, uh, that investment, um, is really quite extraordinary, but but at the same time, you know, I would say what what makes it tough is that, it, you know, it is it costs, um, you know, a couple hundred million dollars to, per, you know, to have that one stadium, and the and the reality is is as I look at soccer in this country, and I know some of the, a lot of the topics that are very uh, that that you talk about often, are. Uh, in its own way, every city in this country needs to have that um, that uh, their own uh, soccer house um, as part of their uh, you know daily routine. And unfortunately, you know, looking at you know my my historical perspective is that one of the greatest things that's lacking is that even today those solid roots for soccer don't exist. And it's simply because it came along so late in the process of the development of our country. Do you think that what we are seeing right now with the infrastructure projects that some of these major league soccer franchises have undergone, some of the USL uh, franchises as well have undergone in terms of stadiums and, and we can kind of set aside how they are getting financed. Many of these have come through taxpayer funding or, or public support or partial public support. Um, personally, I'm not I'm not a big fan of that uh, revenue or, or investment model that that wealthy owners are kind of holding communities hostage, saying if if you don't give us what we want, we're going to move or leave or not get a franchise, etc. But set, setting aside that for a minute, do you think that one of the things that cities and communities across the country could do is um, create kind of a municipal stadium, um, almost like a network of municipal stadiums or city county type stadiums that, that basically, you know, if you had three or four or five clubs in an area, but you know, they, they would have the ability to kind of, share a stadium do you think some infrastructure like that would would help especially the lower you go down uh the ladder in, within u.s oh, soccer it's, 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 it's absolutely essential meaning you know i mean one of the things you look at say in the fall is when you have you know one of the things that came out this, this past week was the open cup draw and last weekend the weekend before you had the final round of the open division, which is the qualifying of, of teams below the, the so-called fourth division, you know, the NPSL and USL League Two. And you look at the facilities in which these games are played at, and, you know, they come close, but the, but the reality is, is in most cases, there's no ownership or long-term you know, uh, operational agreement to use these facilities so that there's no way to make it a home to produce even the smallest and most modest revenue sources for these clubs to, uh, you know, to make a go at. And, you know, uh, I'm sure that's one of the big issues that uh, the Federation is facing in adding ESPN as a 
broadcaster streaming all the games that you know ESPN is going to want to make sure that the facility in which the game is played at is uh, uh, you know is you know TV worthy at a, at a minimum standard. And so the point being that you know every community has a high school stadium, every community has a high school gym. And the quality of those vary greatly. Obviously, in some states, like say Texas, they're you know they're better than you know, a lot of soccer stadiums. But the point is, is that they that there is that community anchor to those sports, and soccer doesn't have that, and it suffers tremendously because of it for its long-term future. And that's where I said, meaning that I could see these things happening, but you know we've been at this 50 years and it hasn't happened and it will take another 50 years for it to take place. Although there is the, in many areas, the great uh, issue of land space, the cost of land and, and things like that, that make it a tough go. Absolutely. And, and one of the things though, that I, that I think um, is, is important in that conversation is a lot of these things, when we look at national issues like stadium infrastructure that are soccer-specific stadium infrastructure, we, we both can cite hundreds of examples of high school, college stadiums. Maybe they are or are not soccer-specific, but they, they can house a, a soccer match. Um, and so we have plenty of infrastructure on on that level, but on the level of soccer specific stadiums, um, I think that even though this is a national issue, it's it's like with clubs when you're looking at a, a club and you're just starting. There, obviously, in our current system, there are some limitations. There is a glass ceiling. Um, you, you referenced it earlier about having to have you know hundreds of millions of dollars in access and et cetera. At the highest level, you're absolutely spot on. But when you are first starting a club, there are the, the limitations, the glass ceiling. It's not a. It's not. It's not having a direct effect on your ability to operate because when you're dealing with you know, 100, 200, 500, 1,000, 2,000 fans or supporters or members of your club, it, the, the Federation's not directly keeping you from or, or restricting your ability to grow. It's really at, at other levels where, where that gets into play. So when we're looking at a, a situation of, of, stadium access and building stadiums and building those things up. I, I look at it in a similar way to clubs. I think that cities and communities across the country need to think of this as a local issue rather than just a national issue. Because I think, I think if we, if we look at this as an, as a national issue, it, it may take 150 years before we see some stadiums across the country, just because everyone's going to keep looking at each other waiting on someone to take action um you know that that to me is is an important piece of this that there's a lot that we still can do in our own communities in our own cities to build out what we are doing and to to raise the level of the experience for people right where we are no i, I agree totally um and a couple of things i'd say is that you know the first thing is that going back to my early days in the you know, 60s and 70s, in big, big areas like New York where I grew up, there were still a few of these uh, um, soccer facilities that were really extensions of club, you know, social clubs and clubhouses of the ethnic clubs that started out in New York, the examples being uh, Met Oval in Queens and uh, Farchers Grove in New Jersey, where, where Claudia Rainier and Greg Berhalter ended up, you know, uh, playing as kids in, in the 80s. And, uh, but, net, but, you know, what I would then say is that one of the greatest issues that the way I look at it is that 
so much of what happened in American soccer was for the good in the sense of people came along and you know wanted to grow the sport. But in some ways, everyone tried to grow it too quickly and local roots didn't take hold. And that's where, you know, things, all the issues of travel soccer and pay to play and all those things came along as people tried to grow the sport too quickly. Obviously, it came along as those things were introduced into the society as a sort of acceptance of ways of parents to uh, throw money at their kids' activities. But to me, one of the greatest, and I've, and I've thrown this out as something, uh, one of the greatest things that I wish soccer had done was use the Little League baseball community model of having local boundaries for the most, you know, lowest level uh, uh, participation. And the reason why I say that is that uh, I know that from my experience where our son, who ended up uh, played Little League Baseball, ended up playing, just finished up last year, playing college baseball. And it was obviously a tremendous ex you know, experience for him, just like I'm sure it would be for kids um, and their parents of other sports experiences. But to me, the thing was, is that because there were boundaries, we as a community in the town of Albany and half the the, the other half of the boundary of our little league was in Berkeley, had to uh, ensure that we uh, held on to and promoted baseball in our small area. And that meant uh, issues of dealing with uh, maintaining, controlling, and having access to fields, which, you know, in the 20 years or so I've been in Albany where I live, the, you know, it's, it, it has become an occasion, a quite political issue. So we, it meant that the, that the, the Little League baseball people had to become very uh, you know, politically active. Um, but it meant that there was a great interest in the community such that you know, when my son was 11 and his team won the Little League district, you know, the local paper you know, sent their, you know, their one sports writer out to cover it. The point being that uh, you would never find any of that in youth soccer at the travel level because there's no tie to a community. And that's something, as I said, is that that's something that to me, you know, people will, might dispute that to saying that, oh, I'm involved in the community, but it needs to be much, much stronger for uh, uh, that community uh, interest to make sure soccer's interests are taken care of. And that's where I think it goes back to some of the things that, that you talk about, Daniel, in terms of, of looking to uh, find, maintain, and grow some type of facility for, for soccer in, in an area. I think that, that one of the things we miss in American soccer is the understanding or, or something that we lack is the understanding of what a club really is. If you, as you have, if you go to a place like Europe and you you come in contact with football clubs, and they, they may not be playing first division in their country. It may be a community club, but it's a different feeling. It's a different experience than what we have in America. I, I, I see a lot of brands. I don't see a lot of clubs. And I, I make that distinction because the experience you get in, in being a part of a club is, is a deeper relationship than just being a transactional one. And 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 it goes beyond the transaction of parents paying for their kids or uh, families paying tickets to come watch your team play. That's a transactional relationship. And obviously, from a from an operating side, from a commercial side, that is part of what you you have to have in place in order to be functional, to be viable, to to be sustainable, and to grow. But the 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 relationship depth 
between the public and these organizations around the country, by and large, kind of stop at that surface level of transactions. I'm going to pay you for a service. You're going to give me something back, or I'm going to pay you for an experience. You're going to give that back uh, in some form of an experience. Where where I think we have have missed it is understanding truly what it means to be part of a club. And I think what you're hitting on there is is so key um, in in terms of the way Little League Baseball had have addressed boundaries and created a a, a network of uh, these little league organizations in in states where you ha- if you want to play baseball little league baseball and in and you are you know in your city if it's big enough maybe there's multiple zones if it's small enough maybe it that there's only one league to play in but but you it's that's your league that's the one that you that you play in it's kind of it's part it becomes kind of part of what you do and 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 i you know i've seen that in my own community and with with how families feel about baseball and and the way that they have grown up at at a park playing at this park for you know since they were four years old and then they're 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 playing into their teenage years and then going to play in high school but they they reminisce they talk about that camaraderie and that feeling of being in the community part of the community and i do think we've missed that with this with the way soccer is operated especially um at the adult amateur and and the youth levels of the system because when you are in a club um and you are you know going to training at a park or in a place it 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 doesn't have exactly that same kind of feeling and i and i and and i don't know if the if the boundary system that you described is the is the answer or not or it's part of the answer but i definitely think that what we are doing is is um not creating the environments for those what i would call authentic true clubs football clubs to really form in these communities around the country um when when you look at the landscape of u.s soccer and in all of your coverage over these these last 34 plus years what recently have you found to be one of the more interesting stories that you uh, you guys have been looking at at soccer america um, I mean, I mean, that's a hard question in that, you know, it depends upon the level we're talking at. Um, you know, I can think of, you know, across the board of various things that I could, you know, I could look at things like, you know, I'll just name off things. And again, they're, they're a little more high level than local, but they touch on local in a sense of, you know, it came up this week with Seattle signing a 15-year-old kid from Las Vegas who had moved as part of their home state program. So some of the things that MLS teams are doing at the youth level like Seattle. Uh, you have an example in Louisville of being able to build a stadium but without an MLS uh, uh, you know, qualification to it. You have something like, uh, you know, Detroit City, um, which has been in the NPSL, being able to build out support of you know five or six thousand fans a game um, out of nowhere with nothing around it. So um, you know, I mean, those are some of the things at a little higher level that have been uh, you know you know quite amazing because each of them you know took ingenuity, it took some expertise, um, but it, it's all something that has grown to be bigger than you thought it would have been or expected it to be. So in, in terms of the, the Seattle story that you found interesting, uh, was that player from Vegas moved to Seattle or were they in a homestay program? 
uh, home, they were in the home state, home state program where they, the Sounders, have in the last year signed probably nine or ten, fifteen or sixteen year olds to USL contracts. And of though most of them have been kids who, most of them are Latino kids. Most of them are kids who they discovered in markets outside the Seattle area, um, up and down the Central Valley of California here, which has always has a big Latino community and has traditionally had no outlet for soccer players because there was nothing local there. Um, Danny, uh, Ve, you know, you know, Veva, who's from uh, Leva, sorry, who's from uh, Las Vegas, and he had a couple of kids who were from Eastern Washington, um, in more rural farming areas of the state, who again were uh, young kids who were very good soccer players, and who uh, um, you know have moved to Seattle our home state, and they uh, all attend, uh, uh, or they, 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 they train with the Sounders and their Sounders second team after being with their academy, and literally spend the day in the, the, the small cafeteria, or the pizza room, as Garth Lagerway, the, 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 the Sounders GM put it this week, um, at, um, where, they, uh, you know, where they spend the day uh, studying on their online classes. So, question for you: Knowing the rules of of U.S. soccer in in terms of professional players, when when looking at the policies of U.S. soccer, it one of the things that that is covered in their their policy manual is if a player is signed to a professional contract, they they cannot compete in a um, amateur play. Uh, for 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 like youth, so is the development academy kind of exempted from that rule? Do you know? Um, I don't think it's exempted f- from that rule. I'm not sure what you're referring to, but the point being that the reverse of that is obviously true. Where that was something that lies kids started out on is uh, you can play on the development academy, and then you can uh, you know. Uh, play in the USL on AMRA contracts, you know, um, the point being that the big issue is, uh, you know, this is something that's uh, totally unique to the United States, is the issue of maintaining their college eligibility. The point being that the NCA will, will allow, you know, will, uh, you know, until you're in college, you can play with professionals as long as you're not getting paid and, and you're uh, paying your own expenses. So, the the these USL contracts with these players that are coming and doing the the homestay etc. They are, uh, to your knowledge, signing amateur contracts with they're, the USL. They're signing pro contracts. The the, the 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 as I said, the tenor, you know, the Danny Levas and the other ten players. They're not signing pro contracts when they move to Seattle. But but the reality is that most of them have been, and this is where the the Sounders have been good in their scouting or fortunate in their scouting that that I'll bet you half of the kids they've brought there have, have, have in the last year signed pro contracts. So in, in this setup, they're bringing them in into the, the USL, the Sounders to uh, that I think recently relocated to Tacoma. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. So um, you have these players. Do you think that's, that's kind of a response to the fact that, you, 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 we've started to see with the higher echelon of, of U.S. young talent leaving for Europe that they are trying to get kind of some control over the younger players so that they can't just leave without compensation? Um, yes, meaning they sort of had the players, and again, I'm not saying this in, in a negative, I don't want in effect, they have the players hostage in the sense of that most of these players, unless they have a, access to an EU passport, can't go before they're 18. So to, uh, you know, for some of these kids, you know, to, if they're going to be in this environment, they might as well be paid for it. Um, in a lot of cases, um, 
the view is is that they're never going to play college, so there's no reason to remain amateur. Um, and uh, the other point being that using this this model, this model is something say in the sport of uh, of hockey is the standard for you know what would be called junior A hockey, which you know th there happen to be in the Northwest um, uh, a bunch of teams like that, where at the age of 14, uh, you know a kid will be homestayed, play hockey year-round, and uh, get paid for it. Um, not a lot of money, but paid for it enough that, you know, they can't, uh, can't get a college scholarship or can't go to college because of eligibility issues, and the whole intention is that they'll be pros uh, uh, in a few years. So I would, but, look, I would definitely look at that as, as, as some progress in a couple ways. Number one, that the families of these kids are forward thinking. They're 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 starting to adopt a professional mindset, which we need more of in this country when it comes to our families and in in the players. Um, for for a long time, I think college soccer has been the dominant next or majority next step for a lot of players, even our our best players. And really, if, if, if we want our national teams to aspire for excellence and greatness and, and being at the, at the top uh, of the heap, we need our best players at the youngest possible age, you know, entering into that kind of environment um, and, and, and learning what it means to be a professional and stretching yourself, challenging yourself and being willing to, in the case of, you know, the NCAA, in college soccer, um, take the risk of, of losing eligibility. It's not for everybody. And, and certainly I wouldn't, I would not say that, uh, and advocate that it should be for everybody, but for those players who are very, very serious and they want to make a career of this, the, the fact that more of these players and their families are considering this, I think is, is a good thing. Um, yep. You know, one thing I would add is that that I think that and you talk about what, what I would say is you know recent developments, and this is more of a macro thing than a, a micro thing, is that to the point that you're making, that probably the biggest change I would say in the last five years has been the rapid development in this area, but one of the biggest ones is what you just point to, is how much better prepared players are for the uh, um, course they need to take at the start of the ages of their teenage years or player at a highly competitive level. And also the understanding of their parents and their advisors, you might say, of what that path needs to be, what it takes, and how uh, you know the seriousness of it all—that you know, I said five years ago didn't exist. And the point being that you could look at five to ten years previously, and the the talent level of some of the players going coming up at that time probably wasn't that much different than it is today. But they were these kids were totally unprepared for what it was going to take to if they wanted to make it, and which is why so many of them. And you can go back even to say Tab Ramos's 2013 under 20 team, which at the time was heralded as, as a very exciting, attractive team. Most of those kids are out of soccer today because they were totally unprepared for what it was going to take, and. Um, you know, you look at someone like, you know, Tyler Adams, who went to uh, Germany this winter, has been starting for RB Leipzig, playing very well. You know, he was a kid who, you know, at the age of 14, uh, only six years ago or so, uh, you know, he knew then what his, what he was going to, his path was going to be to, to make it. And I think one of the things that, uh, is important is for
for people to see what the path is and what it what it's going to take. Um, and traditionally, soccer's never had that. It's had college as sort of the path, as just the, the accepted way of 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 going. And I think you know, um, obviously, still it, it, it college is something that's there. Is you know, to say important, it's important for families that their kids get a college education, and they see soccer as a route to 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 making that, and in some odd ways, that goes to the whole, you know, the whole uh, scandal that that broke out recently. Was, uh, you know, was that, you know, realization, and then parents, you know, spending tons of money on top of the, you know, the sort of the the soccer, the money they're paying on soccer to fix it. I mean, fix it literally of buying their way into college, but uh, you know. As I said, I mean the biggest change has been these kids are so much more ready, which is why you see, you know, kids breaking into MLS um, uh, last year and this year um, at ages of 16, 17, and 18, and looking not out of place. Um, obviously, I think MLS has changed their tune a little bit in terms of seeing the need for uh, seeing the market for you know for selling players, so that they're more willing to you know to give players a chance, but, you know, at the end of the day, coaches are not going to give those kids a chance if they can't do it. And they are. And it's something that came up last week. Uh, um, we were talking with someone who um, had been at the U-17 camp that Raphael Wiki, the new coach, held for the first time. And he uh, ex- was, I'm not sure what the word was, surprised or shocked at uh, – the, how far along in the development the kids he had, which were all 15 and 16 year old kids, meaning that you know he's not a he you know he he had worked in Switzerland, which is a you know relatively small country, but a pretty good soccer country in terms of its success in recent World Cups and also in terms of its uh, youth program. And he you know frankly didn't realize how, how far along these kids were, which as I said is something that has only happened in the in the last couple of years. Well, and I, I think that the, the there's definitely, in terms of those areas, some, some good movement, some, some progress there. Um, and, and my hope is, is that clubs around the country continue to look within and, um, and without in terms of, looking out to other clubs trying to connect together we're we're going to be a better soccer country the more we can connect together come together work together um, and provide pathways opportunities structure system uh, ideally a connected system of leagues uh, based on sporting merit I, I think would definitely be kind of the the super highway that kind of gets things into gear uh, much quicker than where than the current system uh, in terms of progress. But in these incremental changes and and opportunities that some of these players are are taking on, I, I am glad to see that mentality shift uh, with with them and in understanding that there there is a a new way, a new path um, that maybe didn't exist five, ten, fifteen, twenty years ago. As we kind of uh, come to a close here, I I want to ask you to to look into your crystal ball and give us an idea of what you think U.S. soccer looks like over the next five years. What, what do you What do you knowing what you know over your thirty four plus years of of covering the sport in a, in in America? What do you What do you see? What do you see coming up over the horizon? I, I what I would see is I would see a lot of uh, um, as I would describe it, and I described today in, in the context of a story I wrote on the uh, this past week on the the new season for the women's league, is that um, there'll be a lot of growing pains, but there'll be growth. And I use that in the context of MLS. I can use that in the context of the USL, in the context of any number of the leagues that are trying to get off the ground. That uh, you know. There'll be a lot of more people wanting to come on board, but I could see a lot of shakeup, meaning that it's not, you know, soccer is not a finished product here. And so that, uh, 
in a lot of cases, it's, it's not going to make it. And so that the work that needs to be done is going to continue and continue for many years. And, uh, uh, you know, the good side, as I said, is that a lot of people see it as uh, a opportunity for growth. The people coming involved are much more uh, attuned and more uh, have done their much better due diligence to get in, but it's still a tough business to make it at at the so sort of speak the professional club level, and I think at the at the youth level, it will. I think there's more recognition of from parents of being aware of what they can or can't or should or should not be spending or what services and opportunities there should be for their players. So that uh, I think uh, uh, there'll be a big shake up there too of some of the poorer run operations. Well, Paul, thanks for coming on the show. And um, I, I want everybody to, to be able to, know kind of how to connect with you and how to learn more about what uh, you and uh, everybody at Soccer America is doing. Um, I, on Twitter, they can connect with you, follow you at PK Edit. What about uh, Soccer America? Um, Soccer America, uh, SoccerAmerica.com is our website. And uh, Soccer America uh, is available as a subscription-based uh, e-letter that we put out under the uh, Soccer America Pro comes out four or five times a day with the different things. We do each day a, uh, a newsletter in which we have stories and tidbits of information um, that uh, a lot of people find very valuable. We do a TV uh, uh, schedule each day that comes out and we do our Soccer America Confidential series in which we talk to leaders and influencers in the game about all the things that we've you know discussed today and so uh, you can go to soccer america and look for the join page and sign up and uh, we started about a year and a half ago as our paid product placing the magazine that we had used to done have done and uh, so far we've gotten a, a very good response to which we're happy and uh, it's allowed us you know to continue to move forward and, you know, every day uh, provide our the expertise that, you know, we've developed all these years. Fantastic. Well, thanks for joining us on the show and for coming on. We look forward to having you back on very, very soon. And uh, again, thanks. Uh, thanks for being here. Oh, you're very welcome. And uh, all the best. Good luck. The show is a great new addition to uh, out there. Appreciate it. That was Paul Kennedy of Soccer America, the legend himself, covering the game for over 30 years, 34-plus years with Soccer America. And uh, he has a lot of, of tidbits, stories. Story time with Paul is is awesome. It is definitely a, a great um, experience to have him on the show and to, to be able to, to speak with him. Um he he's doing great work. The uh, the 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 sport has grown so much uh, over the the last few years and uh, and decades from where it was and when he started and and so it's always great to hear from him and kind of see what he's seeing and hear what he's hearing and, and have those conversations. The uh, the sponsor for the show today is Charity Water and uh, Charity Water does incredible things around the world. And has been not quite for 35 plus years, but for for over 10 years. And they're bringing clean drinking water to people that need it around the world. If you don't know about Charity Water, check them out at charitywater.org. You can learn more about them by going to charitywater.org. We'll be back in just. <laughs> तर अहिले को बच्चा लाई मैले शुद्ध हरी अथवा उनका क्लास में गया रहती निकी बन्नी मेरा बंदा हरी उन्हें रूप बच्चा हरी एक क्लास दो क्लास तीन तीन क्लास का बच्चा हरी उनके सहारे रूप में चीजें और युद्ध वर्कशॉप्स में मैं टीचर पंचू सोशल वर्क 
engineer. Welcome back to the Daniel Warber Show. It is yours truly, Daniel Workman. I'd like to thank Paul Kennedy for coming on the show. He has um, been covering the sport for a very, very long time. He's seen so much, and it's always great to talk to him and to connect with him and uh, and, and kind of get his insight on what he knows and, and what he's experienced and seen. Um, the, the, the thing about American soccer that is easy to get lost in all of this is that soccer's been around for a hundred years in America. You can go and look at the history of the U.S. Open Cup and look at the fact that, that we have seen soccer come and, and, and build and grow, kind of go down, kind of almost disappear, especially at the top levels, kind of come back. And for anybody who is a Major League Soccer um, franchise supporter, you have to realize that soccer's been around a lot longer than MLS. It's been it's it, even at the top level, it's been it's been around a lot longer. And it's important to remember that that there is history here. That and part of that history is a history of underperformance, and it's still alive today. We are not reaching our potential in American soccer. And, and, and the reason for that, the sole reason for that, is we are not executing well. That execution uh, stems from leadership. It, it stems from leadership at the federation level. It stems from leadership within our clubs, within our franchises, within our leagues. Um, we are not reaching our potential. That is, that is the standard that that I'm always looking at is, is not just what we do, which if you just measure our progress on what we do, we, we can see some things that are positive. But if we look at what we could be, we realize that we have a long way to go. And, and I think Paul I, you know, talked about that, how he, he felt like it was going to be another 50 years before there was real big substantial progress in in one area where where i think that 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 would change is that if we had a system and a federation that was was uniting everyone with a system that connects everyone together and when we connect together uh, through through league play through the way that we just process the game in terms of where we stand in this country, where we stand in our own community, where we stand internationally. It changes our mindset and our mentality, and we begin to realize that, man, soccer has been around a lot longer than we thought, and, and that there's a lot that we can learn from others, uh, others that, that have come here from other countries, others who are currently operating in other countries, and get better faster um, learning through through their experience personal experience is the worst 
uh, form of education. It's the most painful. It takes the longest um, it, it, pathway or timeline to, to learn a lesson. And in, in, in many cases, in many cases, it's unnecessary. There are things that we can do and, and lessons that we can learn, systems and strategies that we can put in place that will help us get where we want to go much faster than 50 years if we are willing to embrace them, if we are willing to humble ourselves as a country and in, in, in a similar way, similar way to Germany, humble ourselves to, to a point of being willing to put everything on the table and say, look, here's where we are. And we want to, we want to, we, we don't want to, unnecessarily put at risk things and work and infrastructure unnecessarily. But we also recognize that there is a massive potential for the game here and we're not getting we're not getting close to, to, to maximizing our potential. And so let's take some steps. Let's build up um, what we do and how we do what we do to to a level that begins to at least reach for the stars and reach for attaining our potential and grasping the opportunity before us. As I've mentioned before on the show, clubs and leagues around the world are looking at us. They are looking at us and going, we want to go there. We want to be a part of that because we see massive potential. It's time that we look at ourselves in the same way. And if we do that, if we change our mentality and we instead adopt this same mentality of growth, opportunity, unity, connection, sporting merit, and, and, and excellence, all kind of wrapped up into some form of a soccer casserole of systems and structures, etc., we we can do so much more, so much faster, improve our sport, improve the game, and and really begin to go beyond a few dozen cities and a few dozen stadiums and see real progress in hundreds, if not thousands, of cities and communities across this country in very in a very 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 short amount of time. So. I, I want to again say thanks to to Paul for coming on the show. Um, it is it is always a treat to talk to him. And I, I if you if you haven't had a chance to check out their work, go to socceramerica.com. Um, they uh, there have a, a lot of, like I said, in, interesting stories uh, to to follow up on and general soccer news, uh, especially within the American landscape that you may not find anywhere else. So. Check them out at SoccerAmerica.com. Thanks for joining us on the show. We are really, really excited uh, to have had him on the show with, with his background and experience. And uh, we look forward to uh, continuing to have him on the show in the very, very near future.